Jed Rose, uh, partner at Antler. Good morning. How are you? Hey, morning, Lawrence. Good to see you. Doing great. Thanks. Good to see you on this. Uh, my computer's saying it's minus six outside. So, uh, you know, very, very festive London uh, uh, Christmas morning here. But thanks for joining us. Um, we're here to talk about Antler. Um, we wanted to learn a bit about what it is that you guys are doing. Um, obviously, one of the more exciting propositions um, in terms in terms of uh, investment, in terms of the startup world. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, um, just kicking off then, what is the overarching mission for you guys? Um, I mean, we're what we call a day zero investor, which is quite unique in the VC world. And there's a handful of teams out, out there globally that are doing this. Um, the journey really started about six years ago back in Singapore, um, where the co-founding team um, launched the Antler model. And the Antler model really is kind of built on a few things. Um, the first is that entrepreneurship, there's a lot of barriers in the way for kind of building a company. Uh, there's a lot of people with visions, ideas of what they want to do, problems they want to solve. But there's kind of three things that are really um, traditional barriers for entrepreneurs to get off the ground. Um, the first is having a good team. I mean, I think history and data shows there are solo founders, but the path that gets you the best possibility for success and traction and speed is having a co-founding team. And the way we talk about it at Antler is you have skill sets and experience. Um, you've got kind of functions, skills, domain expertise, specific hands-on experience in particular industries. And so as you'd expect, particularly in a tech-enabled world uh, where VCs backing tech-enabled companies, you want that background, that mat, that that mix of commercial experience, um, engineering, uh, maybe specialist skills where someone has a specialty in computer vision or applied AI, or maybe specific industry experience like in energy. And so finding that co-founding team is a really important part. And it's really hard within the circles that we have. And also just that what happens a lot of times is people spend an hour here, hour there on the side, um, but they're not really giving it the full effort. And so that's really tough to kind of just have your toe in the water versus jumping fully in to really give that opportunity a shot and speed as you imagine is everything. And so if you do that for six months or a year, you're already falling behind versus where others are. So the first thing is finding a co-founder. The second thing is that first check. And so what I mean by first check is someone betting on you as in the people and the idea that you have without having a customer, without having revenue, without having traction. And so the Antler model um, addresses that too. And I'll walk you through kind of how that works. And then the third thing is support. You know, if you have just two people, do you have the right support, coaching, advisors, investors, connecting you to the industry? So those are really kind of the three core problems that entrepreneurs have with getting things off the ground. So what the Antler model is to address that is to really build a global model where we have basically hubs in 26 locations across six continents around the world, started in Singapore. Um, and I'm based here in, in London with um, Ollie, who's the other partner, and really applying this model at a local level. And the, the fundamental premise is that there's entrepreneurship is everywhere. Uh, the issue is access. And so the Antler model allows that to be done in a scalable way. Um, now, how we do it is we get applications from entrepreneurs around the world. So like in the UK, for example, we got over 6,000 applications in the last year. That results in about 180 entrepreneurs who are selected, who have ideas, they have backgrounds, they have what we call spikes, you know, kind of like specific things that they're strong at. And they join our program. We call them founders and residents, where they actually move into our office for three months. We pay them to leave their jobs. So there's a stipend that we pay as well. And it gives them that motivation and that leap of faith to take the jump, to leave their job, focus fully on building something with someone else, 
And then over the course of about three months, these, you know, in the case of the UK, 60 to 70 to 80 founders, I mean, the the, the energy in the room is electric. It reminds me of kind of like back in university days where, you know, you have all these bright people who are super driven and switched on and they have a fundamental goal driving them and no distractions. It's I want to build something that makes an impact on the world. And I believe in the problem that I'm solving. And so there's a lot of mixing and matching over the three months. And so how we do it is we have a program team um, that's really world-class um, and think for the first three or four weeks, it's like nine to six plus evenings. Um, it's a startup boot camp. Plus ask evening. me anything, panelists, talk to founders, talk to people who've done well, talk to people who failed. And then basically after that first month, they then start to mix and match form teams. And there's really a whole kind of matchmaking process. You know, the average founder in the UK is on two and a half teams by the time that they leave at the end of the three months. So it's quite normal to start in one direction and decide, well, you know, I'm not really feeling this or I want to focus on something else. Um, and so that's the journey. So you have about three months there. And then at the end of that journey, um, if you are at a, what we call a VC backable state, uh, what that means is it's the right founder market fit. Um, you have the right VC fit. It's an exciting problem area. This kind of outsized returns that you're generating for customers, you're creating significant value. And the third thing is trajectory, which is what have you done over the past three months? So we do a level of due diligence that pretty much no other VC does anywhere because we actually know these people from the very beginning before they even have a team. We work with them and coach them and we engage with them over the three months. And we can see exactly what they're doing week in, week out and how much momentum they have. Um, and so those are the three things that we really look at. And then that kind of decides if you get an invitation to the investment committee. And then we're doing, you know, I'd say roughly 20 to 25 investments a year like that. Nice, nice. And, and what, what's the what's the minimum size investment that you guys do? So we do fixed terms. So it's quite simple. Um, and, you know, again, for pre-seed, it, it's, it's fair in the sense that we're industry agnostic, right? So let's start with that. So we invest in, I think, over 35 different industries. Um, we've invested in a fintech company that solves mortgage lending, um, a facial skincare company that uses computer vision to recommend products. We've invested in a vegan lipstick company, you know, that kind of has a more sustainable approach for creating lipstick. So we, to make it easy for everyone and to kind of be very upfront in the beginning, before you even join, before you have a business, before you have a team, everyone understands kind of the terms. And so it's 120K for 10% at a 1.2 million valuation. And one thing that you hit on, which, which again, I think most founders struggle with is actually marrying up with a co-founder. Now, would you invest in a company if there were, if one of the co-founders wasn't tech focused, if their skill set wasn't, if their background wasn't as a computer scientist, did you ever get that where you just get two business guys come along and there's no one in the team that's uh, that's actually a uh, a technologist? It's a great question, and as you'd expect, it really depends on the business. Um, you know, so we have some teams where the tech is the big bet, and in that case, it's quite a big dependency uh, because if you have co-founders. And one of them has that engineering background, as you can imagine, it's far more capital efficient and a less burn rate than to have to outsource that or find a third party or bring on a third co-founder. Um, and so there's several ways of dealing with that. You know, if it's if it's not an engineering intensive um, idea, and I've given some examples of that with some of the companies we've invested in, um, that could be you know something that's perfectly okay and fine. You still have to have a roadmap and plan. You know, how are you going to get that done and who will do it? Um, what does happen sometimes is people could add a third co-founder. That's happened before. And so we actually allow people to add co-founders during the process. So we start off with, let's say, 60 or so people. Um, and they say, hey, there's this extra skill set we need. And we know someone who's perfect for this. 
and then we actually run them through the interview process like we did with everyone else oh, and if it's a good fit yeah we can add them to the program oh wow so you're you're actually there you're 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 really holding their hand at that point making yeah. sure they're not so and you act as a check and balance to make sure they're not letting anyone into the team that really doesn't deserve to be there that's right Nice. Yeah. yeah. So our, our last two cohorts, and we do three of these a year, they actually grew in size by the end. They were bigger than where they started because you have some teams that are adding people. Sure. Yeah, and, and I guess for any startup, I guess they're constantly looking to recruit and find the, the next person uh, to push them to the next level. But I mean, and, and again, your background, where, where did you start off with everything? So career wise, I mean, I think I'd go back to my academics. So I studied at Stanford and I did what was a very Silicon Valley major called symbolic systems, which is a combination of computer science, psychology, philosophy, and linguistics. Right. And, and, and those aren't four yeah. different fields. It's one study, one major across all the different departments. And it was one of the toughest things, you know, that I've ever done academically, um, because you have to kind of be a jack of all trades across very different fields. But you know, it doesn't take, you know, much, you know, looking at what's worked in Silicon Valley to see that, you know, it is very much the overlap of those areas. Um, the way I talk about it from a VC perspective is at the end of the day, we're solving people problems. And you can't really know what problem you're solving at a human level, unless you're willing to talk through the tough questions of what is their problem? What is their pain? What are their behaviors? How is your problem fixing that? And how do you communicate that effectively? So from my perspective, you know, kind of the liberal arts meets engineering meets humanities, um, I think that's very much a part of, I, I think, a lot of tech startups today. And I, I, I think one thing you you mentioned earlier as well is, you know, having having a purpose, right, um, for your startup. And I think that the philosophical approach applied with morality, applied with technology, is really where most of these founders sit now. Um, I, I, I imagine it can't be that exciting for you, someone to come up uh, with an idea that's just going to make money, right? You must be looking for, uh, like you mentioned, like, even like the vegan lipstick. It's something that creates sustainability and something that it has has a far more reaching uh, purpose behind it. It's it's both. The way we talk about it at Antler, if you can imagine like those magical Venn diagrams, it's an overlap of the two. So it needs to make good business sense and you need to be creating a lot of value to justify you know, which should be a significant company valuation in, let's say, seven to 10 years. Um, but it also has to have a very, very strong founder market fit and a problem area that drives you to your core. And it's it's one of those things over the past three years at Antler that I've kind of seen firsthand, because as you'd expect, there's this chart that I show where we talk about the founder's journey, and it's got a y-axis and an x-axis, and it's got like this journey where kind of in the beginning, it's tough. And then I showed that graph going below the x-axis at one point where like you just want to give up because everything's against you. Everyone's saying no. And grit, as you can imagine, is such an important part of success long term for companies. And the people who really believe in what they're solving and have that deep conviction to defy the odds and overcome the naysayers. I mean, our most successful portfolio companies all had people that said no to them. Uh, every one of them has that story. And so you have to have that drive, that inner drive to really believe what you're doing. We had, I think, I always get the number wrong, but I, I know I know we've done close to like a thousand. We got we did close to a thousand applications before we got investment. So yeah, yep. again, your idea and your perspective changes along the way, but so does your knowledge, right? You become so much more knowledgeable. Um, and then all of a sudden you understand really what it is investors are looking for and how 
they want you to be able to like validate your product and also find the right product market fit, which actually is something that you guys help with as well, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, I think one way of thinking about it is, look, on the investor side, particularly early stage, as you'd expect, the earlier you go, the more important the team is because <laughs> you don't have numbers, you don't have cohorts, you don't have revenue, you don't have, you don't even have product. And so do you believe in these people? And so that's a super important thing. And what that means is for early stage investors, a lot of times they want to get to know the team. And so this is kind of one of our big, big advantages because we've known them for three months before we write that first check. And then when you're talking to other investors, they have to kind of get up to speed, build confidence, understand your trajectory, the things that I talked about. And so it's quite normal in the early, early days, you know, for people to say, let's keep in touch. Sounds interesting. Let me know when you hit your first customer, um, depending on the investor's growth, you know, risk appetite. Um, and so I, I think that's part of it. You're right. So inherently knows a lot of it. Um, and so you have to understand what it is you're driving for. We call them North Star metrics. And so we talk about that with all of our teams, which is you've just got an investment. You're at the beginning of this journey. What are you building over the next six months, nine months, 12 months? And it's a very tough question. And, and one of the things that I've learned over my entire career um, is the importance of alignment. And if you're not aligned, you could have really bright people, really driven people. But if they're pushing in the wrong direction and you don't have much to show for what you've done, where are you? And have you created something of the most possible value that you could create? Yeah, I, I think I, I've been there in terms of the fact that we've we've looked back. Yarn and, and I always have a conversation around this time. And we say, 12 months from now, where do we need to be? In order to say that this has been a, in order to say that it's been a successful year, and we literally we list it all out, and we've had years where we've got to Christmas, look back, and we just haven't achieved anything. Yeah, genuinely, like like it's and it's been like right, do we quit or do we start again? And you know, I'm very fortunate to say that actually, Yarn is just um, and Yarn and Tarek are just phenomenal people, and they're just tough um, as is Emma, and you know, we, we just we've just stuck with it and. I think for us, finding that right product market fit was the turning point. So, and and that that's one thing that's right. I'm really curious to that three months, because I, th I think you're the only uh, company I've come across that's actually offering this. Three months, you're spending almost like um, in a business environment or a classroom, I guess, in some aspects. Uh, how much focus, emphasis is there at that point on finding the right product market fit? Or is it still too early and you're trying to just get the team to gel? Yeah, it's the way we talk about it is there's kind of this journey where we say, and it's related to what we just talked about with grit, which is fall in love with the problem, not the solution. Everyone there has an idea of a solution. And if you haven't done kind of the, I guess, the proper overview of kind of what makes a successful company and what are the right steps, it's very easy to just say, I think this is what we need to do and have that conviction. And a lot of times it's not even from an experience where they understand the customer. There's just kind of this, you know, I guess, deep feeling that this is what's needed. And so we really encourage patience. Um, and it's related to what I said earlier about alignment, because if you go down the wrong way and you're betting everything on the solution and the solution doesn't validate, you're kind of screwed. Now you've lost a lot of time and you have to go back to the drawing board. So we start with the drawing board. And what the drawing board means is really understanding the problem. What is the problem you're solving? really kind of going bigger and understanding what's the full set of problems that you could solve and then really zeroing in on what you think is the problem that's most exciting to go after. And it's kind of counterintuitive um, because it requires patience. It requires you kind of really reflecting and understanding the market. Um, and what we find a lot of the times, this isn't all teams, but a good portion of our teams, 
they have deep experience in particular industries. And so what that means is they've already shortcut that. They've been through that journey. When they join the program, they already know it's broken. So MAST, for example, which does mortgage lending and basically makes the process more efficient for lenders. Um, one of the co-founders was at Barclays and did corporate and retail banking. And he saw firsthand how inefficient it is for them managing those applications because it's paper-driven manual and there's all this error checking that they don't do. And so he came into the program with a pretty clear idea of what was broken and the specific thing that he felt was like the biggest impact. And so they were able to go through that first part of the journey really quickly, bring on the right co-founders, and then they could start focusing on the ideation in terms of how they could solve it and what they could do to make a big impact for customers. And, and what's it like for you? Because I guess that you've got all these companies, they probably all want your attention all the time. Um, how, how do you then focus? How do you, how do you spend your time, your day, your energy, um, ensuring that you know, you're optimizing everything you can for these startups? So we're, we're, we have kind of a startup mentality as a VC. It's quite interesting, right? Because think about it. We started in Singapore six years ago. Now we're in 26 cities, um, you know, and have our portfolios are growing rather quickly. Uh, in the UK, we have about 57 companies. It'll be probably over 80 by the end of next year. Um, and we're aiming for it to be 300 plus by the end of the decade. So when you have numbers of that scale, I mean, to your point, you have to think about how do you support them and how do you do it efficiently? And the first answer is the program. That's very scalable, right? So as far as the educational component, um, the panels, um, the social activities, you know, those things scale really well. On the support side, um, we have technology in-house. And so Antler has some fantastic tech tools that we've built internally that allow our teams to be more efficient, um, such as we can share notes with each other. When I have a meeting with someone, I can capture that and put my thoughts down. And not only put my thoughts down, but give ratings, feedback, and that's instantly shared across the team so that when someone else meets with that person, they're not just having a conversation from scratch, they already are up to speed. And they could also dig into a particular thing that I flagged and say, hey, you know, how's this going with this? Or, hey, do you need help with that? Um, and so that allows the team to really be far more efficient, you know, on a meeting by meeting level. And then on top of that, um, we have other tech tools for tracking the teams and their progress and, and really making a quick decision on the investment side, because as our cohort grows, we have to be able to, you know, really make that from a tech-enabled perspective um, efficient, easy to follow, easy to track, and quickly build conviction on the due diligence. So there's automation there too. So you've got the program, you've got the tools and the tech. Yeah, on the yeah. people side, um, how we do it is we split up coaching. So what that means is I coach a subset of the teams, and then we have other coaches on the UK team that help out everyone. But really, you know, I'd say by and large, people have access as they need it. Um, you know, people can set up one-on-one -on -one times with myself. Uh, we also make ourselves available in the sessions that we talked about earlier. And I mean, in, in terms of, and I've got to ask this because I, I get asked about this a lot from people that are looking to set up their own company, pitch decks, how important are they? I'm awful at them. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm awful at pitch decks. Uh, you know, like I, I think we've done dozens and dozens of, of them. And it was only really when Jan took, uh, took control of the reins that we started getting anywhere with it. But um, yeah, they, there seems to be so many, so many questions, so much emphasis on pitch decks. And yeah. I'm starting to wonder how, how important they actually are. It's not the pitch deck that's important. It's the content and what you add to it in terms of your perspective. So, I mean, a fun fact about Antler in the UK is we don't give a template. So, you know, they know that they have to ultimately culminate in pitch decks. So we have teams that are pitching us pit, with pitch decks uh, within the first month and a half, right? They're already starting to pitch us. And so every week, 
um, we do what we call these check-ins where people give their latest pitch and they update it again and again and again. And by the time we make an investment decision, we've heard this pitch like seven or eight times um, and we've given feedback. They get feedback across the whole team. Um, and we find that it's a very effective way of building confidence um, and also just really testing your message. Like again and again, it's it's one of the most important things on the pitch side, right? How do you get people to join your company? How do you get investors on board? You have to be able to communicate effectively what it is you're doing and why it's exciting and what progress you've made. And it's not easy, right? And so I've talked to the teams. We've done these panels where I brought on past portfolio companies um, who are now raising millions. They've been through the antler journey. And one of the questions I asked recently in like the last month was, how did you do it? And, you know, his answer was we practice 20 plus times a week. Yeah. Every week. Yeah. So add that up. That's over a hundred times by the time we make an investment decision. Yeah. You better believe that that person's going to do a great job representing their company when talking to investors, you know, after getting that antler investment. Yeah. So it's not so much the pitch deck per se. It's the content, the evolution of it, how the presenter kind of represents the company and then making sure that it's, you know, effective to the standard that VCs expect. So I, I, I think, because I, I do quite a few talks like universities and I was saying to the students recently that they need to learn how to actually pitch and sell mm. above anything else. And mm. it's interesting you say that because they're nervous. They've got some brilliant ideas. They know how to execute. But when it comes down to sales, they're definitely lacking. And I read a really good book. I don't know if you know, it, Ryan Breslow, Fundraising. No, I haven't read it. So he uh, he's like a young guy. He's raised like three hundred and fifty um three hundred fifty million dollars from like VCs, and he actually like talks through his exact pitch that he uses. And when I read the book, I copied it, I wrote it down, I rewrote it, I recorded it onto my iPhone, and then I just practiced it, practiced it, practiced it, like you say. And I think for us particularly, that that was a a very good turning point because we knew what information the VCs then wanted and we had to like rehearse it. But I mean, in terms of sales, I do feel that there's almost like an avoidance from startup founders, right? Like inevitably everything comes down to money. It comes down to business. At what point do you want to see? So with us, like I set the target, I said within six months of launching, we are selling that we're selling. That doesn't matter what it is, but we're going to sell it. Um, and actually, I had another VC who told, who gave me a bit of a kick up the backside and told me to get on with that, which also helped. But um, at what point should um, should founders be like, right, let's go, let's go and actually generate revenue now? Look, it's um, it, it depends on the business. So you know, the example that I gave earlier with Mast, uh, they didn't make revenue or sales until a year and a half into their journey, and we knew that going into it because you know, again, there was high conviction in the team. We knew how long it would take to build the product. Now, I think there's a fine line between sales and engaging with customers. And so engaging with customers, for sure, that needs to happen. We need to validate and we need to get feedback and we need to understand how big is the pain? Um, what are they currently using? Um, do they believe that this potentially could be something that fixes a problem? Can we build a proof of concept? Right. So we've done that before as well, where maybe you don't have the full product vision, but we can try and test out a particular feature within that product and give conviction that it can make an impact and that the, that the team can deliver it. So I think it's more customer uh, validation than it is about sales. But to your point, if there's a product where the tech roadmap is not that long and you can build something with proof of concept, I would say that there is an expectation that you should be able to show some traction. We have had teams do revenue before investment. Most probably don't have that. 
you know, again, it's going from nothing to idea to team to, to IC. And so it really depends on the team. You know, if it's B2B, B2C, um, depending on the industry, if you're targeting enterprise customers, you know, which we have a few companies that do, you know, we're not expecting there to be necessarily revenue, but what you could have is a letter of intent. What you could have is a pilot. What you could have is someone who's on your advisory board, who's from one of these companies who says, I really believe in this and I believe in it so much that I want to help you guys get there. Those are all things that you can point to that show traction. And actually, that that's something I think I try and encourage founders to do is actually build an advisory board from day mm-hmm. one. Um, and I actually I actually think you need to like separate it and understand exactly what uh, what resources you're going to need and just reach out to people. And it's amazing how many people want to be part of your journey. It's amazing how many people are actually willing to give you the time. Um, and well, it, it's, it, time. It, in many ways, it's a good filter, right? Because and this is, again, where kind of the Antler model is really interesting. So your first step in your journey is convincing a person to drop whatever it is that they want to do and join you. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's the first sale. Right. To, to yeah. your point about sales starts. I mean, you're right. From that perspective, sales at the very beginning, you have to sell to someone else. This is exciting. I believe in it. And you could play a big part in this. Um, and then going from there, you know, I think you're right. It, it kind of depends on the path that you take. And so, 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 you know, we've spoken about how, you know, how you're supporting founders very early on. There's also like, then there's the validation of the product, the product development, um, and then it goes on to like launching, launching and scaling their business. You then mentioned that at the growth stage, once you've held them, you've written the first check for them. You mentioned that you then for the right companies at the right time, you then help them to raise additional capital what, what does that process look like is, is that a is that a seed round is that a, a series a round yeah so i mean one of the unique things about antler as a vc you know beyond being global and reach beyond being a pre-seed investor beyond helping you build your team beyond writing the first check and having the connection to 600 advisors around the world we oh. also do follow-on investments right and so um, one of the things that we tell our teams is um, for future rounds if you raise over a million and it's led by another institutional vc um, we're there to do pro investment and we are capable of following on all the way through exit. And we do this through multiple funds that we have. So in the UK, we have an early stage fund, but then Antler globally has a global fund that participates from series A onwards. Um, so we've done this already with UK companies. So that's quite an effective thing to tell founders is we want to back you all the way to the end, right? So, and that also is a very, very strong message with other VCs. These are companies we really believe in and they know there's additional capital for some of these rounds that are the follow-on rounds. Um, beyond that, you know, as you'd expect, we have a pretty good network of investors that we've co-invested with. Um, and you know, we, we, we have a good fundraising record of that with our portfolio. So for example, 86% of our teams get follow-on funding within 12 months after that antler investment. Oh, wow. And that's a combination of VCs and angels. Um, our survivability rate, I think is 96% roughly. Um, and so that's, we've only had two companies close out of you know, roughly 60. So these are all like very, you know, strong metrics and it's kind of a com- culmination of the follow-on fund and then also our connections to investors and being able to really understand the companies and which fit really well with the VCs and their investment thesis. Because a lot of it's about making sure that it's relevant to the fund that you're talking to. That That's an interesting statistic because I, I read in Statistica that only 4% of companies that raise at seed level even make it to Series A. So you guys are obviously doing something uh, very, very right there. Um, what would be your advice for founders? And again, like as, as someone like myself, you know, we've started the business. We had a company beforehand. 
raised a load of money, failed, and it was because you know the relationship with the investors it didn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, we've then taken the view, actually, do you know, we're just going to do it all ourselves. We've now got to a point where you know we've grown quite a lot. Like I, I keep going back and forth, and I think, am I making a mistake not raising money? Right. Is it stopping? Is it slowing down? And one thing you mentioned very early on that is so important is speed. Look, it's at the end of the day, and I think this is important, like at Antler, you know, we invest and get 10 percent equity in the beginning. And we look to maintain that over the life of the company. We have no interest in driving decisions, you know, kind of telling them what to do, what not to do. Um, You know, these are the founders decisions, you know, who they get investment from. Um, what do they want to prioritize on? We're there uh, really to advise and kind of lean on our experience to help them. But kind of what you're talking about there, you know, that, that's a founder decision in terms of what do you want to do? Who do you want to raise from? How much do you want to raise? I mean, I'm dealing this right now with across an entire portfolio of roughly 60 companies where some people are saying, should we raise more capital now to get longer runway because of the macro environment? Sure. Um, these are very kind of personal decisions that founders have to make. And obviously we're there to support them, but we're not looking to drive those decisions. That's interesting. Yeah. So from me, I, I've kind of just thought, actually, just let's just have like very low capital expenditure um, and let's just push it as long as we can before having to actually raise money. But I mean, what, what would be your overarching advice then for uh, for founders? And really, like, what do you think the future of startups looks like? So look, there's a couple of views on that one. I'll, I'll try to break this into two areas. One is new companies and then existing companies. I think that might be a healthy way to look at it. Um, on the new company side, uh, I would say from an environment perspective, there's probably never been a more exciting time in at least a decade to build a company right now. And there's just so many things that are in startups' favor. Um, when you're going through periods of economic uncertainty, you have what we've read widely about layoffs, people leaving their jobs. This is talent, particularly in Europe, by the way, um, there's a lot more people with experience in high growth environments now than there were even 10 years ago. I, I think if you go back 10 years ago, you could fit the number of unicorns around a dinner table. Today, you need a theater. This is for Europe. Yeah. And so what that means is you've got thousands of people now who have experience in VC growth environments, having track records, understanding, learning from their failures, creating growth that are looking to build their next thing because they have insights and they have that experience and they're looking to apply it to a new problem. And so from a macro perspective for building a new company, you genuinely have all this talent. And we're seeing this at Antler, not just seeing it. We have 26 locations around the world. We are very unique in that we are tapped into the pre-seed kind of, I don't want to call it like network of the world because we have entrepreneurs, not companies applying to us. And so we're seeing the experience difference and the people that are applying to us. um, And it's notably deeper um, than it was, you know, even like five years ago. Majority of the people that join our, 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 our cohorts, they were founders before. Um, average years worth work experience is about seven years in the UK. So these are people with great experience in VC-backed environments. The other thing you have are the headwinds, right? So this is where companies are now being more defensive. Um, it's more about bottom line, profitability, and taking less risk. And so that means you've got companies that typically would have a huge advantage just frankly, just being less innovative because they don't have the luxury of doing that now. And so they have to scale back their bets. And then the last piece you have is you have all these macro pain points that are now spiking up. Um, So these are things because of the economic period that we're in and because of the unique things happening right now on a global scale. For example, um, in our last cohort, we have a company called XWATS. 
um, which is looking to reduce electricity bills by 30% for hospitals and offices. If you had that idea a year ago, it wouldn't be anywhere near the amount of impact that you have today. And so it's a good example of kind of macro trends driving innovation and driving kind of where we see companies taking off and getting traction. So from a new company perspective, beyond excited, um, from an antler perspective, you know, we learn very quickly. We see kind of where the ideas and passions are and where the experience is. And we're seeing it translate into businesses that are being backed and getting significant traction off the back of those things. For the portfolio, um, look, it, it, you know, kind of similar to what we said earlier, it really depends on the company. Um, I think if I were to give broad stroke guidance, we're seeing people plan for longer runways. So while before they might've aimed for one year, some teams might be aiming for a year and a half to two years. Um, but it really depends on kind of the financial performance of each business and at what point they think they'll hit sustainability. Well, it was going to be interesting to see. Um, yeah, it, it's obviously an amazing opportunity, the time, like you say, for startups to build. Um, and again, so if anyone wants to apply to Antler, um, I guess they can go to your website. Um, yeah. But yeah. Yeah, antler.co, um, and you can apply to any of the locations. Um, and we run them in the UK, we run them three times a year. So pretty much it's not too far away when we run the next one. Awesome. Jade, it's been great having you with us today. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thanks, Lawrence.